Blog Talk Radio. Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Um, again, you know, welcome back tonight. Those of you who joined us last night had a great conversation um, with my daughter, Erin Perkins, about uh, the... Uh, renowned text from James Baldwin, The Fire Next Time. And today um, I have somebody with me who has uh, written a little bit about that and a number of other um, really fascinating um, essays um, on um, race and um, America and society. Uh, He is an author, an editor, and commentator, um, Mr. William Spivy, welcome, William. Well, thank you, and I'm glad to be invited here. Well, so glad to have you, and, and really appreciate you taking the time um, to talk with us. And um, we're going to have, I mean, this is such an exciting week for me. First time we've done this uh, a, a, a series like this. We've had two-part series in the past, but this week, a special week, we have a four-part series that we're doing. As I mentioned, um, Aaron and I did a text-based discussion live last night on The Fire Next Time. Tonight, we're going to talk about uh, just kind of the time period, early 60s, mid-60s, compared to now. Has anything changed is the central question. Tomorrow, I have a panel of black men who have sons and we're going to talk about the 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 talk that happens around how you interact with police and how you interact with society the the race talk and how people see you uh that's tomorrow night at eight and then capping it all off on thursday night at eight also we have a group of women black women with girls and young women um, and they're going to talk about a similar conversation they have with their young girls and women. And so uh, I'm just really interested. Uh, why don't we start? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, and and how you uh, – I, I read somewhere where you, um, you, you mentioned that you kind of uh, ended up writing. Uh, it wasn't necessarily your, your initial – um, your initial start, but uh, certainly you have you have uh, uh, held your own over the years in the things that you've written. So fascinating for those of you who are interested. Um, and and please, Mr. Spivy, tell us a little bit about other places. But uh, there are a series of essays that he's written for Medium.com, and I think you everyone you you'd be really enlightened to to go through those and read them. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and how you came to start talking and writing about uh, the racial context in America. 
Uh, thank you. Um, my name is William Spivy. I'm a graduate of Fisk University, which is a very big part of who I am and how I got to be me. I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which uh, is about 15% white, I mean 15% black, excuse me, and at least it was at the time. And the school I went to was about the same, we, although we had black schools. Uh, I went to a mostly white school, and by the time I got to Fisk, you know, my experience was slightly devoid of the black experience. I went to black church with the rest of my time I spent in white society, more or less. Um, I started writing, I guess, in college. I was encouraged by an English professor, Dr. L.M. Collins, to participate in an essay contest on the value of the liberal arts, <clears throat> liberal arts college. And uh, I did it in an attempt to win the $200 cash prize, which I did win. Um, but then I set aside writing because there were no more prizes to win, no more money to make. <laughs> Um, but then uh, I think when social media came about and I started writing on Facebook and started writing essays and then some of my college classmates encouraged me to write a blog. So I started a blog, which is still out there in the world, Enigma in Black at WordPress.com. And mm -hmm. I started writing about the things that interested me, which was uh, politics, race, and education. Mm -hmm. And the more I wrote about uh, particularly race, the more I discovered and, and it turned into writing about history, the more I discovered about America, America's past, and how a lot of things interrelate, and in some sense, how things have stayed the same. And mm -hmm. we went from enslaved people to the black codes to Jim Crow to various forms of discrimination, but it seems like in a, in a sense that America has tried to duplicate uh, the enslavement of, of black people and other minorities in any way that it could throughout its history, including now. Mm -hmm. And you look at things like uh, voter suppression, that after this past election, and all the while up leading up into the, the election, that voter suppression is, is making a comeback and that there's uh, over 240 bills being introduced by it happens to be Republicans this time uh, trying to suppress votes. Um, but uh, each of the major parties has had their day in the sunshine in terms of trying to uh, eliminate black votes. Sure, uh, And sure. as we approach 2045, when white people will be a minority, according to the U.S. Census, uh, they're doing everything they can now, including taking care, taking charge of the judiciary with Mitch McConnell, uh, to ensure that they have as much control as they can. In fact, I'm working on a piece now about 2045, and can America duplicate South Africa during apartheid? Mm. So. Mm -hmm. And in the, as the research I do on my pieces, it just enlightens me more. And because I've now done enough research that I, mean, I can put things together that that I didn't know were interconnected previously. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. You know, uh, last night I, I said because there was uh, a piece, at least in the um, the letter that Baldwin wrote to his nephew, that you know talked about. Um, or at least suggested how people um, were in his, in his mindset doing things um, that systematically killed thousands and hundreds of thousands of people and they didn't know it. And, and so what I was saying was that, you know, once upon a time, I, and I, I guess I used to say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And I don't know that it's necessarily a conspiracy when it is embedded kind of culturally in who 
we are as a country and otherwise. Um, but I, I don't know that it needs to be a conspiracy. It is a way of operating. It is. Um, and so I, I said, I used to think that that was not the case, but I, you know, I, I do think now that there are groups of people who sit back and think about and kind of really strategically plan this out, plan different aspects of this. And like you said, 2045, the data is there um, about where the country is headed. And so I think there are people saying, what are we going to do about that? And what can we do to counter it? Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? Well, as, as far as being a conspiracy theorist, I, I've, I guess I've become one through my research, and it dates back prior to that, but uh, it's embedded in the Constitution. And if you, uh, I want to talk about one aspect of that, which is um, in terms of ending the international slave trade. And in the Constitution, in Article 1, uh, Section 9, Clause 1, uh, it allows that well, actually it says that the international slave trade cannot be ended for at least 20 years. And people look at that, or some people try to describe that as a prelude to the ending of enslavement of people, when it was exactly the opposite. Uh, what it was was uh, ending the international slave trade so that those that were engaged in the domestic slave trade could profit even more. And certain states um, by that time had an excess of enslaved people, like Virginia and Maryland, because they'd ruined their tobacco crops uh, from not rotating the, the crops and things like that. And then all of a sudden they had enslaved people that they were having to sell south, but they were competing against the prices of those people coming off the boat and at a, at a lower price, really, so they couldn't get much for their money. So even 20 years ahead of time, they were planning for that. And by, by the time it got to that 20 years, Thomas Jefferson was president, and he was a large Virginia plantation owner who in, over his lifetime owned at least 600 uh, black people. And he instituted the law that got everything passed the year before so that the first day it was available to end the international slave trade, it ended, but the actual practice of slavery itself did not end for another 60 years. Mm -hmm. um, so it had nothing to do with ending slavery. It had to do with planning to uh, increase the price of domestic slaves. And then the worst part of that is that the increase, which some historians refer to as natural increase, was came through the breeding, the forced breeding of enslaved people, which included rape, and included allowing the friends and family of the owners to utilize black women because there was a, a market for, you know, the lighter-skinned um, black people as well to to serve in the house, and uh, it was a, it was probably a terrible thing which almost nobody knows about. So mm -hmm. I'm glad mm -hmm. I got a chance to get that out. Yeah, sure, sure. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are, there are a number of people who may be listening who would ask, so what does it have to do with now? So, okay, we sorry, that happened. What what does that have to do with what's happening now? Well, if you look at the economics of America in, in the beginning, that in almost all circumstances, black people couldn't own land. And... Mm -hmm. When they became freed, you know, there was that uh, 40 acres and a mule uh, thing, which was actually actually Special Order 15 from General Sherman, which was close to that. 
but it was rescinded by uh, Andrew uh, Jackson, Andrew Johnson um, mm-hmm. after Lincoln was assassinated. And basically, there were some people in North Carolina that actually got some land, which they you know, improved, and then had it taken back from them. So you still have black people primarily without land, without assets, without uh, economic stability. And a lot of things that happened after that uh, still kept them from that. And one of the things that improved a lot of white America was the GI Bill. And the GI Bill allowed veterans to basically buy land at, at, um, with uh, 100% financing. And a lot, of, a lot of people got their start in life, but that was denied to black GIs. Um, so that, you know, white veterans got a huge boost that black veterans did not get. So mm-hmm. people served their country and didn't get the same benefit. So there's right. always been an economic difference. The disparity gap didn't just happen. It was mm-hmm. part of a plan. It was caused by something and still things going, going on today. And um, I have a pet peeve about affirmative action, which a lot of people, a lot of white people I have discussions with resent as if it's a give me. And I would pose it or posit it as a cap that if there was a 10% or a 15% goal that almost never did that goal get exceeded by much that, you know, despite our larger percentage of the population, that you never got to have more than 10 or 15% of the jobs or the contracts. And even many of those contracts were as part of a joint ventures or partnerships with larger companies, which had a benefit. Um, but some of those didn't work out as planned. There were, fronts, there were people's, and then women-owned businesses also became part of that, so it was just as easy to have a woman, um, which in some cases turned out to be wives and relatives, um, as it was a, a black person. Um, so, you know, a lot of the systems that were supposed to help really, you know, put a limit as to how much could happen this much and no more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we get to today and find the income disparity, you know, it's as, it's as a result of some things. It's not because it just happened. It's not because of laziness or inability or, or lack of desire to work. It's because there are real things in place to keep it from happening. Sure, sure. And, and you know, part of the reason um, that I wanted uh, you to be here as someone who has, has really studied this and, and certainly written and um, researched about the history from this is that I think also the assumptions that are made around when, you, you know, the, the, the connection that goes really far back and how that was perpetuated over time, that there were things that um, occurred that, yes, they happened 100-plus years ago or 200 years ago, and in a lot of ways we have not escaped the the impact and the effect of those policies. Um, I, I remember the first time reading about what was the you know the 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 New Deal, and just reading a little bit. I'm you know I'm not a history major, quite the opposite actually, not a sociology major, anything like that. And and but but after I started reading a little bit about policies came to learn that, you know, the New Deal covered um, everyone, and we're talking about what we now refer to as Social Security and the the safety net. And Mm -hmm. um, I learned that 
it covered everyone with the exception of two categories of workers. Now, you may look, and if you, if you think about when the New Deal was presented, a lot of people, senators and, and members of the House at the time were like, well, that's reasonable. I mean, we, I think we can live with that. If you think about all the categories of workers that exist, and there are people that only want to exclude two categories. That's, that's reasonable. We could do that. But when we looked at what those two categories were, they were domestic workers and agricultural Mm -hmm. workers. And so at that time, where were 90 plus percent of blacks employed? As domestics and agricultural workers. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so by design, the system was set up to exclude Blacks, without saying we're excluding blacks, we're only excluding two categories of workers. But it had a, 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 an impact that um, was only with one group of people. And I think there are, there are countless um, examples of where that happened throughout American policy. And another example um, is the mass incarceration policies and the discrepancy mm-hmm. of sentencing rates for crack cocaine, which is at one time was primarily used by black people and uh, Hispanics, and uh, powdered cocaine, which is primarily used by white people. And at one time, the sentence disparity was as much as 100 to 1 in harsher penalties for crack cocaine as it was for, co- for powdered cocaine. And the Senate addressed that, or the Congress addressed it, and made a change to only make the discrepancy 18 to 1 but that, and they were quite satisfied with themselves for having made that change, but still 18 to 1 is still 18 to 1. And mm-hmm. uh, there doesn't seem to be any plans to address that currently. And in the last administration, uh, under initially Jeff Sessions and then through the series of attorney generals that followed him, um, brought back uh, mass incarceration. They uh, pretty much got rid of federal supervision of local police forces, which had taken place through consent decrees primarily. And basically they stopped enforcing the ones that were in place and didn't enter into any new ones. And that's given a signal to police departments that they're able to do what they want to without, without fear of the federal government looking over their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, again, back to the, the question. So we, we think about it because I know you have also written a bit about education. Um, is so the connection between these, and I would love to hear um, your thoughts about it, between these mass incarceration rates and health policies, health care and otherwise, and, and, and impact certain communities. Who are they from your you know, research, but, and, and how, if you're, because we're talking about that a lot of times people don't see the connection between the, the mass incarceration rate. So I, I'm, I'm about connecting the dots for a lot of people. Like, so mm-hmm. what, is, what is it that is the connection between that and what, how that is impacting black families? Um, black health, uh, black um, mental health, physical health. Uh, what's the connection? There's a 
There's so many connections. I don't know if I have time to cover all of them. We'll start with education and that in early American history that for a lot of reasons they didn't want black people to get educated at all. Uh, they didn't want them to have news of things like the Haitian Revolution, which might inspire and did inspire other re revolts inside yeah. America that they wanted to tamp down. Um, and then when uh, education became more or less mandatory, um, it was separate but equal, allegedly, but equal was never equal. And we've got the Brown v. Board um, that they said they can't, there can no longer be discrimination in the Supreme Court. I think they had no choice legally but to find that that was against the law, it was unconstitutional, um, but then they said it can be implemented, you know, with, with all due, uh, I'm looking for the word, basically with, with all due speed, uh, such that any jurisdiction could take all the time they wanted to in implementing it. So you got to the situation where you had schools in the 1970s and 80s that were still segregated. And mm -hmm. finally the government followed up and started issuing consent decrees with individual school districts. Um, and basically they ended into agreements to, uh, to finally integrate those schools uh, in most cases. Um, but you have situations like in New York today, which is highly segregated, and in parts of Mississippi and even Florida, um, where you still have what are, in all, for all practical purposes, uh, segregated schools. Mm -hmm. And they also did not have the same uh, facilities or the same books. And graduates of those schools didn't have the same prospects. You couldn't get into necessarily some of the same institutions of higher learning. Uh, and because of their backgrounds and, you know, even if some of them got in, they weren't in all cases prepared because of they didn't have the books, they didn't have the best teachers. And so you had people that may have gotten an opportunity, some, some of whom were able to take advantage of it based on aptitude, but others um, were set up to fail. Mm -hmm. um, then you have the school-to-prison pipeline where – you have resource officers and school officers, you know, sending people to jail for offenses. You know, I'm talking about black kids now for offenses mm -hmm. that they would look the other way if it was a white kid. Um, so, you know, this is uh, America and James Baldwin, lest we forget that we started talking about Baldwin. Right. Yeah, he said he loved America, but uh, this is why he reserved the right to criticize it perpetually, mm -hmm. that uh, he wanted America to be better. And mm -hmm. I think we all want America to be better, but right now the, the political attitude is such that if you talk about race and race disparity and, and discrimination, that you're, hate, you're providing hatred and you're hating on America and, and you're just providing criticism instead of just simply you know, accepting things as they are. Well, things are not yet equal, and mm -hmm. we don't want them to be as they are. We want better for our, for our kids, for ourselves. Yeah. Sure, sure. So I, I heard once a colleague of mine in Massachusetts gave a lecture and the title of the lecture, why America can't think straight about race. And I, and so I'm, I, I know this is a, a kind of the, the tough question is, so what do we do? What do we Right now we're in a, a, a troubling time mm. and uh you know, talking about the 60s, and I, you know, was a child in the 60s, but what existed more in the 60s than, uh, than now 
is there was a greater degree of hope. Mm-hmm. And there was a belief that things would change and things were getting better. And Dr. King talked about the moral arc trending towards justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just, there was just, a, you know, I attended some events. I was a Boy Scout. And I attended the National Jamboree in Idaho in 1969 uh, with scouts from all over the world. And, you know, you had a sense that the people coming together, there were, you know, people, you know, kids trading patches and meeting with each other and, and working out language differences. And, and you really had a hope that the world was, was getting better to come together. And then you had, uh, you know, even with, the, you know, about the, the war, the Vietnam War and, and um you know, Dr. King was leading protests and, uh, until his assassination, but there was still a sense of hope that things were getting better. And now there seems to be an, ex- an acceptance, at least among our, our would, a lot of our would-be allies, that, you know, racism has been fixed, that it's not really an issue. And there are, you know, media networks that, you know, what they do is provide cover for racism, racist acts, and basically try to rewrite the, the definition of racism such that it no longer exists, that nobody's racist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I see less of a, a hope, and I think Baldwin actually, you know, lost hope after the assassination of Dr. King, and he left and went to France. And uh, um, he was disillusioned with America, and even a country you love can be too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You know, I I was thinking about the the time frame where um, I know I used to ask my my mother and aunt and others about that time period, and um, I, I would agree that they you know they saw a lot of hope at the beginning of the sixties, late fifties. Uh, my mother was a member of the class of 1954 um, and then moving forward, I had other people um, who graduated from high school in the sixties and then became more um, as we became more integrated. um, The the black schools throughout the South um, were, were closed down and, and black children were moved into the uh, the white schools to integrate those. Um, but towards the end of that, um, there was a sense of of despair because a lot of the leaders were being killed um, and and were no longer there to um, to provide the you know the sense of hope. But I I think about what is happening. And um, and look at who were the leaders, and there seemed to be a sense of national leadership in different pockets. And I've talked to a number of people who are sociologists and others, and and they have said that, well, it's not the same. You know, we don't we don't have say a Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or John F. Kennedy or Robert Kennedy or, and, you know, on and on that we don't have these central figures in the way we used to. What do you, what do you think? Is it needed now? Or have we, have we kind of grown out of that? 
the need for centralized leadership? What do you think? I think in a lot of ways centralized leadership would be welcome, but there's also a, a, a built-in, you know, movement to destroy black leaders like there always has been, but even more so that you've got uh, anti-leaders who, whose main purpose seems to be to try to tear down, you know, black leaders. And there's, there are black people uh, that have nothing good to say about any black person living. Um, and all they do is tear down our leaders. And then with social media and, you know, all the Internet confusion, you know, that it can take either truth or lies and spread them equally, that uh, you could take, uh, for example, I'll throw out Sean King as an example, that, you know, that there is, as he's got both ends of the spectrum, people that are devoted to him and what he does, and people that are trying to tear him down. And at least some of what they're saying about him is false. And you got uh, I don't want the, the right-wing people who only are there to criticize black people like Candace Owens, um, Diamond and Silk, if they count in the conversation, that, uh, you know, it seems like there is not the same kind of national support for leadership. And I think that that's by design that uh, even in the 60s, there was an attempt to tear down Martin and Malcolm and John Lewis and anybody else that was making a name for themselves or doing what was feared by those in power in America that would actually change the status quo. So that, uh, and John Lewis was, was one that actually got out alive. And you look at the, I think it's a movie coming out about Fred Hampton, uh, mm-hmm. who was killed by the FBI. And, and uh, we don't get to hear about some of the black leaders that were shot down even before, literally shot down, even before they, you know, reached the pinnacle of achievement that they might have. Um, so it is, it will take some kind of leader to galvanize, you know, the nation. And should that person arise, I, I fear for the elements that will conspire against him or her to mm-hmm. shut them down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's our way out? One way is like Baldwin said, to stop, to never stop fighting, to, uh, you know, not give up and not simply accept that This is the best it's going to get because uh, I think we're in a, have been in a lull at least during the past four years. And uh, there's a chance for things to get better and continue to get better. Um, education, it's going to be important, and uh, voting is always going to be important, and you can't let you know any attempts to uh, suppress votes stop us. Uh, despite all the attempts in Georgia, in particular, to suppress votes, that uh, in the last election it was enough to change two Senate seats and control the Senate, uh, along with the presidency, and it's a different America right now than it would have been had uh, those two Georgia senators lost. So Stacey Abrams deserves all the credit in the world. And mm-hmm. I don't think we're, we're through hearing from her yet. Right. Um, so uh, voting, uh, educating, educating our students and educating ourselves, uh, learning our history because Baldwin says you have to know who you are. And if you know where you came from, 
then you know you have the possibility of of doing better. If you don't know where you came from or how you got there, you're 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 lost in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, education, voting, uh, activism. We have to stay involved, and uh, you know just research. You can't believe everything you hear, especially these days. Right. And get your news from a variety of sources. You know, don't accept any one source. There are um, left-wing sources that were just as problematic as some of the right-wing uh, media sources. Uh, so you have to, you know, do your own research and not turn around and and repeat everything you've heard without checking to see as best you can whether it's true. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, you know, we're already – we. Have, um looked up and it's already uh past 30 minutes i do have one one other thing i'd like to um to ask you about and sure you you've you've laid out what you think the solutions um are you know what at least how we can address this is that um the question i posed in the title of today's broadcast is has anything changed um I'd, I'd love as we get ready to close out to hear you um, as we look back 60 years almost to that time um, when Baldwin wrote this letter. And that's the thing that struck me initially um, that how relevant it is and would be if it had been written yesterday. And so, which leads me to, I think kind of the simple way to look at things is that yeah of course things have changed we have technology there's a lot that has changed given we know that but essentially have things changed are we still are we are we any better off than when we were when we were sitting in at lunch counters are we and and I don't mean just as from an economic standpoint um, there are arguments about that from an education standpoint, but are we have we have we significantly made progress um, that will kind of propel us into the future in such a way that um, other generations? I know you know this current generation. It has been reported the first one that will not ha- do better than um, their parents. Um, but but as it relates um, to the black community, have things changed? Yeah, my personal opinion is that it's changed very little. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there are moments in time that look like they they might change the, the trend. One mm-hmm. such moment was the, the death of George Floyd in a protest that yeah. took place immediately afterward. And you had people in the streets all over the country. And the majority of those people were white people, and mm-hmm. they were demanding change. And for for a period of time, the uh, those that favored the status quo were reeling. They they didn't have an answer for that, and all they could do was go along and suggest, yes, we have to make changes, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do better. Uh, it took a while, but then they got their footing because part of those those protests were usurped by people with their own agendas. Um, both on the left and the right, and I'm talking primarily white people, um, mm-hmm. that 
you know, created violence and, and did enough damage that the, the message was changed, then it wasn't one of, you know, demanding, you know, a better justice system, but, you know, turning back these law-breaking protesters, criminals, uh, and allowing them to position, you know, Tifa and anybody else on the left as being equal to or worse than the white supremacists that America has never sought fit to, I, I take that back, there was a period of time in 1915, 1917, that they actually went after the Klan and mm-hmm. uh, reduced their ranks and, and um, you know, basically put them out of business for a while until they came back. Um, but for the most part, white supremacists have been ignored, and Congress has uh, made it uh, such that uh, the FDA, I don't know why it's under their jurisdiction, but they weren't allowed to pursue it, uh, you know, and people weren't allowed to even go after uh, white supremacists. And the FBI had internal reports uh, going after black identity extremism while ignoring white supremacy. And uh, only now are we getting the report from years ago, from a few years ago, saying white supremacists are the biggest challenge to our nation. But in terms of education, you know, I'm, and it was partially due to integration, uh, more integration that uh, HBCUs aren't necessarily the, don't have the same impact as they did in the 60s where they're producing, and they still produce the largest amount of our uh, doctors and lawyers and leaders, um, but still they don't have the same impact as they did. And, and many of them, if not most, are struggling. And it's mm-hmm. good to see the, the donations from uh, some people that, that kind of seem to all be going to Morehouse, Spelman, and Howard, um, <laughs> while the other 100 institutions are struggling. Right. Um, but, you know, having gone to a HBCU, I went to Fisk, and, and you went to Grambling, uh, I can tell you that for some people, and maybe not for all, but for some people, it could be the greatest experience of their lifetime. You get right. a chance to discover, you know, who you are and be supported by people who want the best for you, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I went to high school a block from the University of Minnesota, and I saw those students every day. And, uh, you know, I didn't get the same sense of, of purpose mm-hmm. and that someone else was looking out for them that I, that I had at the black institution that I never suffered uh, from a lack of role models or people that were trying to guide me and help me and push me in certain directions whether at that time through the black church or the black uh, or black schools. Uh, and I don't know that it's the same now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is, you know, the, the George Floyd moment, you know, it's, it, it, I don't know what will actually change. The trial is going on up in Minneapolis right now of uh, Derek Chauvin. And uh, but we've seen many instances where there was no justice and with some of the preliminary decisions there, there may be no justice this time either. Right. Um, so we will see. Um, but, you know, policing in America is is still the same and it remains to be seen whether uh, consent decrees will be reinstituted and whether there will be federal supervision because uh, the police unions are stronger than police chiefs uh, mm-hmm. in today's environment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I have, I'm always going to have hope, but it's going to take some, some change, and there are strong forces uh, lined up against change. And it's, it's maybe it's more about money than race, 
but yeah. it's always been profitable to use race in a way that doesn't benefit black people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Mr. Speedy, uh, thank you so much uh, for being a part of this um, series and uh, lending your um, opinions and research that you've done um, in this area. And again, um, if you don't mind, uh, can you tell uh, listeners a little bit, um, uh, some of those sites where you're currently publishing? I mentioned medium.com. You can look him up, uh, William Spivy, S-P-I-V-E-Y. But um, you had mentioned a couple of their uh, publications you might, anyone might want to pick up and, and read. Uh, you want to share those, please? Yes. You can go to my website at williamfspivy.com. And I'm also at uh, Enigma in Black, as if we're all one word, at wordpress.com. And I'm at both of those locations. And uh, I still have room for about 50 Facebook friends. <laughs> I wouldn't mind accepting anybody that wants to participate in discussions I have there. Sure, sure. Thank you. Thank you again. And for the listeners, um, as you know, this is part two of a four-part broadcast series. Tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have um, the panel of of black men who have boys and young men, um, and we're going to talk about the 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 talk that happens to prepare uh, young men to interact with police and um, be prepared for society. Uh, Mr. Spivy, this has been a great uh, evening uh, discussion. And we really appreciate you being on here. And so until tomorrow night, go well, stay well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to hearing the the rest of the series. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.